Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those that are healthy who need physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Morning. Hope everyone's well. It's good to be back in town. Hope everyone had a good Christmas and New Year's. And I uh, hope everyone's excited to take this next step here uh, in just a few weeks, it looks like. So I know uh, I would appreciate, and I know the elders would appreciate, constant prayer on behalf of the church as we make this new transition. This morning, we're going to be looking at a story from Mark chapter 5. It's really a mini-episode in the life of Christ. And we're going to be zooming in on one character in particular in just a few moments. But we might be tempted, when we look at the stories of the Bible, to think of the characters in the stories as just that, as characters. As if they're not real. Now, obviously we believe they were real people. But even in the church, even amongst believers, we can get into a mindset where we act or behave as if they aren't real. We forget that these were people who had their own hopes and dreams, their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own fears, their own quirks, their own dislikes and likes. We forget that these people had mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, and grew up not realizing that a chance encounter with Jesus would be remembered forever. That this moment in their life would make sure that they will always be remembered. We forget that these are real people and real moments sometimes. Even if we don't forget it intellectually, we approach the stories as if... We forget that. Well, some might say, and some have said, why should I try to relate to such people? They lived, over, they lived 2,000 years ago. They lived in a different culture than me. What, in what way is this person relevant to my life? Here's the thing about Scripture. It doesn't just tell us about what happened. It's not just a history book. It doesn't just tell us about what happened, it also tells us about what happens. When we read the Bible correctly, when we read the stories of the Bible correctly, we don't just read it about an event that took place, we also experience the story from the perspective of the characters. We see ourselves from their point of view. In many ways, we are these people. We go through a lot of the same things they go through today. And we're going to try to prove that this morning by looking at one person in particular, again in Mark chapter 5. You can turn there if, if you haven't already. We're going to be looking that, at that after I tell you two quick stories, just to get you into the right mindset or frame of mind for this particular person and their experience. So let me tell you two stories. One of them happened more recently, the other a few years ago. 
The more recent story happened only two nights ago. I, uh, Carissa, Luke, and I were at home when all of a sudden there was a screaming and a yelling taking place outside. There was a woman who was in the apartment or standing outside the apartment across from us, banging on the door, screaming at the top of her lungs, yelling at the guy inside, telling him, uh, assuming he was there, that she was going to call the police, that he stole her laptop, that she was just going to do whatever it took to get inside, and she's banging on the window. I heard her banging on the door, and she said, I'm going to call the police. And I'm thinking in my mind, okay, you better, because we're about to, right? (laughs) Well, the yelling actually stopped pretty quickly, and I thought nothing more of it. We've heard yelling before, I'm sad to say, and so we just went along with our normal routine. Carissa was putting Luke to sleep upstairs when few hours later, or a few minutes later, I can't remember how long it was, there was a banging on the door. And I'm thinking to myself, oh no, it's that woman, isn't it? Like, okay, if I know the guy, I don't know the guy. And so I'm thinking, pretend I'm not home, you know, but the light's on. So I just, okay, I'll go. And I, I try to look through the peephole. I can't really see anything. So I open the door and there's two police officers standing there. And one of them looks at me and says, Manny? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not Manny. And he goes, is he here? And I said, uh, no, there, there's no Manny here. He goes, is this 7091? And he had the right address. And so I said, yes, but there's, there's no Manny here. I think you want the apartment right here. That's where the woman was yelling. I think that's the one you want. And they kind of looked at me and tried to decide if I was telling the truth. I apparently came across as truthful because they left and they didn't come back. They didn't have any real problems with me. And here's the thing. I knew I wasn't Manny. I knew I wasn't the person they were looking for. But there was adrenaline pumping through my system. I was like in survival mode. When I shut the door, I'm sitting there like feeling sick to my stomach because I had like gone tense. And, and that's just always how I've been, to be perfectly honest. I appreciate what police do. I really do. But I'm always nervous around them. Okay? Maybe you're that way too. I, I, it's taken me several years, as I've lived in California, to get over driving near a police officer. Because where I'm from, let's just say it this way, there's a lot of speed traps, and they look for reasons to pull you over. And so I had to get used to the fact that that's not really how they operate out here. And, and yet, even sometimes when I'm driving and I see a police car, I get nervous because I'm like, oh, I can't mess up. I can't just accidentally swerve, right? I get so nervous around police officers. I do the same thing in airport security. I know that I have done nothing wrong. I'm not smuggling any drugs. I'm not doing anything. And yet, when they stare me down... I know they're going to arrest me because I must have the most guilty face, the most guilty expression on my face because I'm sitting there and I'm trying not to look guilty, but that's just how I, how I am. I'm always, I always feel that pressure when they're staring me down and, and I even think to myself, well, maybe I accidentally packed some drugs and I don't even know, <laughs> right? You just get so nervous. You go, well, one time, here's the second story. One time, I'm going through airport security it's actually, we were in Hawaii, we were flying back from our honeymoon, and a, police, or a security guard calls me over. I'm thinking, oh no, what did I do? Okay, he calls me over to this 
section that's a little bit secluded, and he has me standing there, and I can see him, and I can see the screen he's looking at. And my backpack, it's just a normal backpack, not the one I have now, it's passing through the x-ray, and I can see the x-ray screen. I can see what he's looking at. And he's staring into the contents of my backpack, looking for whatever it is that, that's there. And I kid you not, something goes across the screen that I'll never forget. Everything else was a blur. There was one thing that was clear, because it was metal. It was this. And I can, you see, I had forgotten. Somebody had given, I think it was a wedding gift, kind of like a gag gift. Somebody had given me a batarang. Now, if you don't know what a batarang is, it's like a ninja throwing star, only it's in the shape of the bat symbol for Batman, because people knew I loved Batman. So they gave this to me. I put it into my backpack without even thinking about it. And here, somehow, I smoked it through Fresno security to get to Hawaii. And now here I am in Hawaii trying to get back to California. And this guy is looking at this sharp metal object floating above the rest of the contents, this bat symbol going across the screen. And I can see him thinking. I can see the wheels turning. And he's just confused. And he looks at me and he looks back. And finally he asks me, Is that a batarang? And I said, Yes, yes, I, I carry a battering. I forgot it was there. Well, luckily, they don't arrest you for bringing such things through security. They actually had me mail it to myself. But I'll always remember that moment because I'll always remember the tension. Now that it's happened a couple of times, stuff like that, now I've been called aside. In fact, this last time we flew, one of Luke's baby bags was was searched, and so we were called over for that purpose. I wasn't as nervous this time, because you get used to it. But I have to say, if I get so nervous when I know I'm not guilty, I can't imagine how I would feel if I knew I was. I can't imagine how I would feel getting the stare down by someone who has the authority to put me in jail, the authority to arrest me, knowing that I did something wrong. It's that feeling I want us to keep with us. That feeling of tension, that feeling of nervousness when you're stared down by someone with authority. Because the person we're going to be looking at this morning, she, she was stared down by someone who had the ultimate authority. And she knew she did something wrong. Or at least she believed that was the case. And, but luckily for her, it doesn't go quite as she expects. So if you haven't already, turn to Mark chapter 5. If you haven't, if you don't know the context, let me give you a little bit of a, of a quick appraisal. So Jesus has been traveling around. He's been preaching in different cities. He's been healing crowds who come up to him. He's just gotten in a boat and gone across the Sea of Galilee. On the way, he fell asleep and there was a horrible storm. The disciples were terrified that they would, that they would perish. They wake him up. He calms the storm. And now they're not just afraid of the storm, they're afraid of him. The text tells us they're actually afraid of him and the power he has. Then they get to the other side and, well, who's there to greet them? It's, it's actually several stories in a row that all have to do with fear. It's quite interesting if you want to look into the context here. It's actually a very scary scenario that they walk into on the shore of the other side of the, of the sea here. There's this man who 
all of his clothes have been ripped off or rotted off, and he's got chains dangling down his wrists, and he is screaming, and he is wild, and he is demon-possessed. And not just by one demon, right? That'd be scary enough. He has many demons inside of him. And he says, we are, we call me legion, for we are many. And he is screaming at them, and Jesus expels the demons. They go off into a herd of pigs, which then swoop down the mountain, or down the side of the banks, into the water and drown. Well, this terrifies the people who were herding the, the pigs. It also terrifies the town nearby. They're terrified, not necessarily of the guy who is demon-possessed. They're terrified of Jesus again, right? Because Jesus somehow has control over this man. And they say, please leave. And so Jesus and the disciples get back in the boat. They go back to the other side. When they get there, there's a crowd waiting for them. And a man named Jairus comes up to Jesus, falls down at his feet, and says, please, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come. Lay your hands on her and she will live. So Jesus decides, okay, I'm going to follow Jairus to his house. And they're on their way. But there's so many people, the crowds are so many, that they are pressing in upon them. And it's so much so that Jesus and his disciples can't walk forward without bumping into people. And it's in this context that we read about the woman who we'll be looking at. In verse 25, it says, A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. The text tells us this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Now, the the Bible doesn't get into some of the nitty-gritty details. This probably means she's been bleeding from her womb for 12 years. 12 long years. And she's been going to doctor after doctor. And it says she suffered much at their hands. And that can mean a couple of things. Maybe they swindled her. Maybe they gave her treatments they knew wouldn't work, but they took her money anyway. Or maybe it's even worse than that, and more likely so, that they had inflicted such medieval practices upon her that her pain and her suffering had only grown worse. And yet she's given them all of her money. Now she's left with nothing, and she's not better, she's worse. For 12 years, We also need to understand that this type of thing happens today. It's not just a story about what happened. It's a story about what happens. Are there not people today in our own country or all over the world who suffer for years from an uh, an illness that the doctors simply have, have no idea how to fix? There are people who have suffered for years, spending all that they have trying to get some kind of healing, and yet nothing has worked. It's only grown worse. 
what does that do to a person? Years of disappointment. She's probably depressed. She's lost all hope. She feels like she got the short end of the stick in life. In some cases, people ponder whether or not they should even continue on living. But we also cannot forget that under Jewish law, she was considered unclean. For 12 years now, she's been unallowed or unable to touch another person without making them unclean. Can you imagine going 12 years without touching another person? Now, I know there are some of you who are touch-me-nots. Maybe that sounds appealing to you. But let let me be frank. Even for you, it would grow old after 12 years. Because we as humans need that physical connection. And yet she can't touch another person for 12 straight years without making them unclean. She is a pariah. She's an unmentionable. She's an outcast. She is one to be avoided for 12 years. And she's been told so much by her society that, that she is this, that she's probably started to believe it by now. That she's dirty. If you've gone long enough feeling dirty and depressed, you're probably growing pretty desperate too. This woman was very desperate, and I know there are people here who probably feel desperate as well. Maybe you feel dirty. Maybe you feel like a pariah, like an outcast. Maybe you sinned big time. Maybe you messed up. And everywhere you go, you feel judged. Or maybe people mistreat you, people treat you differently because of how you talk or how you look or any number of things. It it could be any number of things. Maybe you've been mistreated by people who call themselves family, people who call themselves friend, and maybe it's happened so often that you've forgotten what it's like to be treated kindly. There are people like this today. It didn't just happen back then, it happens now. And there comes a point when you've gone long enough that your desperation grows to the breaking point. You see, we're reading about a moment in this woman's life when her desperation and her faith collided. She was desperate enough to push through the crowd. When she heard about Jesus, she was going to make it to Him. She was desperate enough that she was... She was willing to make everyone unclean along the way, right? She's pushing through the crowd, making each person unclean as she goes toward Jesus. She's thinking to herself, maybe I could just touch the hem of his cloak. I'm not sure if that means she's trying to refrain from making him unclean or not, but either way, she's, she's willing to risk it because that's how desperate she is. She reaches out. She touches it. The text tells us immediately. Immediately it's gone. Immediately she's healed. She's been cured. The the bleeding has stopped. Oh, what relief she must have felt. Maybe you've been told about yourself or a family member. Maybe you've heard the glorious words from a doctor. Cancer-free 
The surgery went well. That, that amazing relief, and yet, in this case, it's even better because it's instantaneous, it's miraculous, and she knows she's not going to have this problem anymore. What relief she must have felt, followed quickly by fear. Because Jesus has stopped. Jesus stops walking and he starts looking around and he asks and he calls out, Who touched me? And he's staring down the crowd. He's looking for who it was. And now the woman realizes she's about to be caught by someone with ultimate authority. For who has the authority to punish like God? And so she decides that she... There's nothing else she can do but confess. Oh, sure, I'm, I bet for a moment she thought she might get away with it because the apostles are looking at Jesus like he's crazy. They're telling him, what do you mean? Who touched you? We're in a crowd of people. But Jesus is persistent and he's looking for her. And so finally the text tells us that in fear and trembling she falls down before him. Just as Jairus did, only this time she's not making a request, she's making a confession. She's throwing herself at the mercy of the court because she's just been caught in stealing power from the Son of God. Now, wonderfully, Jesus doesn't accuse. He doesn't punish. Wonderfully, he looks at her. In verse 34, it says, he says this, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." She expected to be told off. You're unclean and you dare touch me? And yet Jesus commends her faith. She expected to be treated as she always had been, like a pariah, like an unmentionable. Instead, Jesus calls her daughter. And that's the only time we read about Jesus using this term for anyone. It's an affectionate term. It's a caring and loving term. A tender word. A word she's probably not heard in a while. In in calling her daughter, Jesus is saying, you are part of my family. You belong to me. And he also clarifies the situation. He says, it's not that you snuck up on me and stole my power. It's nothing like that. He says, no, it was your faith. Your faith has not made you well. Your faith has saved you. Now go and be healed of your affliction because of the amazing love that Jesus has, this woman, in a desperate moment of faith, this dirty disease, this this desperate woman has now been delivered. There are people who can relate to this woman. I would venture to guess there are people in this room who can relate strongly to this woman. And that's the power of Scripture. The Bible, the the stories of the Bible, are not just about what happened, they're about what happens every day. And there are people in the world who feel like outcasts, who feel shunned or broken, And perhaps they feel that way because that's how they've been treated by people who claim to follow God. Perhaps you've been treated, mistreated by Christians, 
by people who claim to follow God, who've looked down their noses at you and have made you feel utterly despised. And so because that's how Christians view you, you you assume that's how God would view you, that God would turn up his nose at you, that if you were to come to God, that you would not be worthy of his healing. Notice how the woman, she didn't just go directly to him to make a request. She felt unworthy, so she had to sneak up on him. And there are people today who feel like they have to sneak up on Jesus. They walk in and they hide in the back or they they try to sit by themselves in the assembly. They don't want to necessarily be seen, but they know they need Jesus, and so they try to sneak. Maybe you're like this woman, and you've lived now for years in suffering. Maybe you're disappointed, you're depressed, you're dirty. Well, I hope that you can... Take a few lessons from this woman. It's so ironic. We don't know her name. We know very little about her. And yet we know her, don't we? Because we, in many ways, are her. And so we can learn from her story. I want to just list off a few things, and then I'll be done. First of all, we need to realize that Jesus is the only true remedy for the problem of sin. You see, this is how Satan likes to trick us. He likes to pretend that there are other remedies out there for the emptiness that is in our soul, for the, for the pain of sin that we are feeling. He wants us to think that, the, that these distractions in the world will help or that they will fill that hole, but in reality they won't. There are people who are trying to fill the void with pornography, or sexual perversion, or sexual promiscuity, and they think that living that kind of lifestyle is going to bring them happiness, and it's going to bring them fulfillment. It's a trick. Satan has put the wool over our eyes. And he makes us, he's trying to make us, he's trying to turn us anywhere but the true source of healing. There are people who think that their job, that working themselves to death, will give them fulfillment. There are people who turn to current affairs or media or entertainment. You know, I I, I truly believe that in our society, yes, we have so many sin problems. I think many people are simply trying to distract themselves from the, the, the fear of death, from the fear of what sin has created in death, and from the fear of the pain that is in their, in their souls. And so what they do is they will grab any distraction that comes their way, whether it be uh, in media, whether it be entertainment, whatever it is, they're just trying to distract themselves because they know this problem is too terrifying to face on their own. But Satan is trying... He, he doesn't want us to go to the great physician for healing. He wants us to go to these false remedies. The woman in this story went to doctor after doctor and none of them helped. They only made things worse. The same is even more true of these false remedies out there. And the woman realized that Jesus was the only true source of healing and she went to him in that wild desperation. And we need to do the same. And the second thing I hope we realize from this woman 
is that we can't just sneak up on Jesus. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He's counted the hairs on your head. He's waiting for you. I don't think any of us believe that Jesus was surprised when the woman touched his cloak. I don't think any of us believe that, that he didn't expect her to be on the path he chose to, to walk. He, know, he, he knows and he knew that she was there and he knew what she needed. And not only that, he was waiting for her. He wanted her to come. He was giving her an opportunity to demonstrate her faith and her desperation and to reach out for him. It wasn't a surprise and he wasn't, it wasn't that she snuck up on him. Same is true today. Christ is waiting. He wants to heal you. He wants to heal all of us. He is the great physician. And he's waiting for you to, to come and reach out to him. But that leads us perhaps to the most important thing we need to learn from this woman. And that, that is that sometimes we need to be desperate enough to come to him. You see, fear oftentimes holds us back. Fear of shame, fear of, of, of who we are, of, of the fact that we are unworthy. And the truth is, none of us are worthy to be saved by Christ, by God. We need to understand that. But there are so many people I've talked to, so many people I've witnessed, who the, where the only thing that stopped them was a feeling that they weren't worthy, that they weren't ready, that they weren't good enough. And it was fear. And they allowed it to stop them from, from turning their life over to Christ and, and letting Him heal them and save them. We, we must learn from this woman in the fact that fear is not an excuse and we cannot allow fear to stop us from turning to Him in our desperation. You may not feel worthy, that's all right. You're not worthy. None of us are. But Christ is still there waiting, and He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to reach out. There's a lot we can learn from this woman. As I said, it's quite ironic that we just we don't know her name. We don't know anything else about her. But we know that in a moment of faith, and desperation, she turned to him. And I hope that you can follow her example. Maybe you've suffered now for many years. Maybe you feel desperate. I hope that you will reach out for him. That you will come to him. He is ready and he is waiting. And I hope also, for any of us who have been healed by Christ, that we will not look around as the disciples did, oblivious, to the, to the pain of, of the people around us. I hope that we can be on the search for such people. That we can give them the love. That we can emulate Christ to them and the love that He has. Because, let's be frank, there are a lot of people who tend to believe that Christians are not loving. That Christians are hurtful judgmental, mean-spirited people. It's a tragedy 
that people who bear the name of Christ could ever be associated with that kind of mindset or mentality. And in some cases, it's you know been the fault of of Christians, and in other cases, it's been uh, it has not been. But let us not give the critic any excuse to call us hypocritical, to call us judgmental or harmful or hurtful. Let us be on the search for the people who are suffering. And let us reach out to them. If you're here this morning and you need to come to Christ, are you desperate enough to put aside your shame, to put aside that fear, and reach out? I hope you are. Please come. As together we stand and sing.